BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, January 16th is just moments away. But before we get into this, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring our program. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace, not Aerosmith Workers, Local 126 and District 8. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, sponsor this program, as well as the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and sponsoring the Ben Jarofsky show. And of course... Today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. I just want to say one thing before I sing. Frank, if you're listening, you and I are in the same wavelength. And now I will sing. Everybody must get stoned. <laughs> ben Jarofsky show starts now. It is Thursday, January 16th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, In These Times, writer Miles Kampflassen will be back. We're talking with union man Jeff Johnson, and it's the return of political strategist PC, Peter Cunningham. Now your host, Chicago Raider columnist, <laughs> Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Something's Going On Thursday. And here's why. So woke up this morning, D. What time? Bright and early at quarter to ten. Hopped out of bed and said to myself, I wonder what Johnny Cass is up to. Yeah, John Cass. The right of right columnist for my not-so-beloved Chicago Tribune, but I subscribe to it every day. You know, I like to recast. You know, I like to see what the other side's up to. I'm not one of these lefties who go, I only read lefties. So I read the right. You know, maybe they can convince me. It hasn't happened yet, but, you know, maybe they convince me. So I open up the Tribune, just like this. That's and, how you open a paper, guys. That's the, the sound <laughs> of it. I know a lot of millennials don't know that sound. Millennials like, some trippy stuff. Anyway, open up the paper, and what do I see? A John Cass column sort of defending Bernie Sanders. That's correct. Oh, Robert Mueller? Yes, that is correct. A John Cass column crying crocodiles tears. No, take crocodile out. That's not fair. Crying tears over CNN's treatment of Bernie Sanders. And I'm like, you know, I found myself agreeing with young Johnny because... I did think CNN was biased in that debate. And furthermore, as we discussed yesterday with David Ferris, an 
excellent interview, if I must say so myself, which we will download. Wendy? You'll be able to uh, get that on Saturday. We, Benny we, J. Bonus interview coming Saturday. David Ferris. Very good. Thank you, uh, Roosevelt University. Professor David uh, Ferris, one of the smartest guys in the city of Chicago when it comes to interpreting national politics. We talked about the overall biases implicit in the questions and the framing of issues by the CNN crew. But uh, what Jump Shot Johnny Cass was talking about, he was talking about the question where when Bernie said, was asked point blank, uh, did you tell Elizabeth Warren uh, that a woman couldn't win uh, the presidency? And, and Bernie Sanders denied it vehemently. And then Abby Phillips, the uh, moderator, turned to Elizabeth Warren and said, what did you think? When Bernie Sanders said that to you, which was just like a stunning moment. I was like, when it happened, I'm like, is she trying to be funny or ironic? Is she not listening? Is she <laughs> kind of hard not to hear Bernie? He said it like she asked him point blank directly. Did you say it? He goes, no, I did not say it. That's like a bad, You're getting there. You're getting there. You think I'm getting better? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not bad. Uh, not bad. Thank you, D. Uh, anyway, this guy's the master of the Bernie no, Sanders invitation, okay? He does it great. He's better than Larry David, ladies uh, and gentlemen. Please stop. Uh, anyway, so, you know, I thought it was a, a bizarre moment, uh, to put it mildly. Didn't know what she was up to. But uh, anyway, so uh, there was John Cass saying that uh, it's proof that CNN has a bias against Bernie and that the whole system is rigged against Bernie Sanders. I like where this is going. I'm trying to get this John Cass interview, and every time you <laughs> say something bad, then we can never book him. So far, we're on the good track here. Uh, keep it up. Keep it up, Ben. Uh, I don't know if you're going to like where I'm heading. I thought, I don't know. I guess I've been covering politics in the city of Chicago for too long, D. All right. I'm always a little skeptical when someone on the far right and Johnny's on the far right, when someone who wears a MAGA hat and Johnny has a MAGA hat, hey. <laughs> when they say something nice about a lefty like Bernie, I'm like, what's going on here? So you know what I did, D? I did something I don't usually do. I went on Twitter. Okay. Oh, God. Let's Way to go. See, let's see I'm proud what, of you, what the Twitter universe is doing. So, you know, I called a millennial and got help and figured out how to do it. And I discovered, lo and behold. Didn't call me. <laughs> no, you're the oldest millennial I've ever. This guy, I love him dearly, but he's like worthless. He's the worst millennial. <laughs> he likes Tom Petty, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. I went on Twitter, D. Hey, what did I discover? It was like a, mag a MAGA hat talking point. MAGA hatters throughout the country are weighing in. Oh, it's like mad hatters. I like that. MAGA hatters, yeah. They were weighing in. They were outraged. They were upset. They were defending Bernie, including Donnie Trump Jr. Donald Trump Jr., son of Donnie Trump president. You know that, Donald Trump? Even he weighed in. And I realized they were all getting their, like, talking points. You know, I talked the other day about how uh, the Tea Party is issuing talking points. Pretty soon I'm going to get a Tea Party email. An email from the Tea Party defending Bernie and attacking CNN. I see it coming. The talking points are going out. They're defending, <laughs> they're defending Bernie. Let me tell you something, folks, right now. All Bernie Sanders supporters out there, I'm going to tell you something. I love Bernie as much as the next lefty. I voted for him in 2016. I probably will vote for him in 2020. But I do not believe, and nor should any of you believe, that anyone of the MAGA hat wearing persuasion really cares about Bernie Sanders. 
The conventional wisdom, which most MAGA hatters uh, buy into, is that Bernie is the easiest opponent for Donald Trump to defeat. This is conventional wisdom, not just on the right. This is conventional wisdom on the left as well, or in the center, I should say. If you listen to Rahm Emanuel, if you listen to David Axelrod, if you listen to any pretty much any of the talking heads uh, that uh, dominate in the news media these days, they will tell you that a, a leftist like Bernie cannot win, that he's just too much of an extremist, and that the Republicans have a book filled with embarrassing photos of Bernie Sanders shirtless in Russia or shirtless in Nicaragua. I'm not quite sure where he was when he was shirtless, D, but they keep saying, we can't wait for Bernie Sanders to be the candidate to running against Donald Trump because we could beat him with this photograph of Ber- Bernie without a shirt on. This is... I, just telling you what the, the conventional wisdom is. Now, I happen not to share that conventional wisdom. I have been convinced over the years by uh, people like, let's see, uh, uh, my good friend Adolfo Mondragon, big Bernie supporter, uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, another big Bernie supporter, uh, many, Miles Conflassen, who comes in here, will be in here in about 15 minutes, has also convinced me of this. Uh, my daughters and her friends, uh, millennials of the leftist persuasion have convinced me that we have to rethink the conventional wisdom in this country when it comes to politics and that a left of center politician like Bernie, who is true to what he uh, has always believed in, has not wavered, can win. Young Dr. D has convinced me this as well. So I, I break from conventional wisdom. I think Bernie can win, and I think it would be a very a great thing for this country to uh, finally confront or deal with the issues that he raises uh, in a meaningful way, like in terms of health care or education, college education for all. Uh, so and uh, e- income inequality, dealing with that as an issue. So I do believe Bernie can win, and I hope he uh, can win, and I hope his ideas could transform American politics, but not once do I believe that any MAGA hat wearer shares my belief, shares my conviction. I believe, I know this sounds cynical, D. I know this sounds like a guy who's been covering Chicago politics for too long, that they're really up to no good. And that they're crying crocodile tears for Bernie because they think he's the easiest candidate to beat. And even if he is not the candidate, they want to split Bernie's supporters from whichever Democratic candidate gets the nomination. So if Joe Biden gets the nomination, they could play on the old uh, themes that they they hammered hat uh, in 2016, trying to pit Hillary Clinton supporters against Bernie supporters. This is their tactic. They're already starting in on it. So this is my advice to Bernie Sanders supporters out there. Don't believe the crocodile tears. We got a great show today, everybody. Miles Conflas will be in the studio. Be curious what Miles has to say about this, D. I know I'm pretty sure he shares my uh, uh, disdain for the way CNN ran that debate, but we'll uh, see what he has to think about the crocodile tears of the of the right. Uh, Jeff Johnson, a pension guru, will be in here at two o'clock. I'm going to talk to him about the reefer tax, D. Yeah, we are we is that part of your news update? No, the reefer nope, tax. No, nope. uh, the um, I see great pre-show planning on the part of me and D. I, uh, D, you're gonna talk about that reefer tax? It was a story in the Sun Times today uh, with the reefer tax could be as high as forty-one percent. That's 
That's, cool. That's stiff, man. I, I think... got a little bit of information on that. Just oh, a little bit. Okay. Is, is, your, is uh, Nickelback Bernie charging a reefer tax? No? I don't think so. Uh, anyway, Peter P.C. Cunningham uh, will be in the studio. You know, I'm P.C., political strategist, uh, usually comes in and uh, brings his guitar, but apparently he's not bringing his guitar today, D. So we'll be talking about politics with uh, P.C., but no guitar today, he told me. Crap. I know. Good. So I was anyway. hoping we'd play Stairway to Heaven today. Uh, yeah, maybe he'll sing it without playing it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so plenty of... As long as you don't sing it. Uh, plenty of political talk ahead of us. Before we do that, the young man from Malton, the man they call Dr. Doobie, with the news. Oh, hang tight. Let me just uh, cancel this email I was going to send to John Cass. Okay, <laughs> and delete. Okay. All right. Uh, the crocodile tears. How's it going, everybody? Oh, so much about Bernie. <laughs> John Cass will never be on this show, uh, guys. Nah, so come keep on, trying. Man. I read him, okay? I read the guy. Doesn't that count for something? By the way, Frank, you and I are in the same wavelength. On that one. Yeah, our avid uh, Ben Jarofsky show listener Frank weighed in before the show and uh, brought up John Cass and Bernie. Before we talk about what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon, about that Chicago City Council meeting on Wednesday. More details from the meeting have emerged since we last left you. It was a long meeting, nearly four hours this council meeting lasted, and you never know what to expect when it comes to these things, and the following from the Chicago Sun-Times and Fran the Woe Man Spielman really highlights that point. Mary Lori Lightfoot admonished a handful of African-American aldermen during Wednesday's city council meeting for, quote, demonizing the gay community and said that, quote, the pie is big enough to slice in lots of other ways. For those who finally decided to crawl out from that rock they've been living under for the last year, Lori Lightfoot is Chicago's first openly gay mayor. So yeah, she's going to have a problem when you, quote, demonize the gay community. The mayor was disturbed by the tone of committee debate Tuesday on her resolution to launch a study that could lay groundwork for creating contract set aside for gay and transgender owned businesses in Chicago. African-American alderman led by Black Caucus Chairman Jason Irvin, Ben of which ward? 28th. Oh, God, you're a dork. <laughs> and Alderman Walter Burnett, Ben? 27th. <laughs> they voiced concern earmarking contracts for gay business owners could pave the way for, quote, privileged white men to game the system again at the expense of African-Americans. They stated that there was no apparent way to prove a person's sexuality and therefore that a set aside for gay business owners would be ripe for corruption. Then they used an Adam Sandler situational comedy film as an example of what they're talking about. A little off-putting, and the mayor was having none of it by the end of Tuesday's discussion. Then on Wednesday, the study came up again, and the concern followed soon after. Alderman David Moore, Ben, what ward? David Moore, uh, you just uh, 17. Alderman David Moore demanded the role. You caught me off guard with that one. I didn't see David Moore coming. What high school did he go to? I'm not as big as a dork as you. Alderman David Simeon. Moore. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> what high school did Walter Burnett Please go stop. To? Alderman David Wells. Moore of the 17th <laughs> Ward demanded the roll call on the study at the city council meeting. So they did that, and the study passed 47 to 1. David Moore was the only one who voted no. Lightfoot, once again having none of it, took to the microphone and shared her thoughts with the alderman who spoke up and opposed the study, saying, quote, it's not the questions that are the problem, it is the content of the question 
and the offensive nature of the tone and the questions and the concerns that were expressed. As a black gay woman proud on all fronts, I have to say I'm disturbed by the nature of the committee discussion and the nature of the discussion here today. We need not ask anyone's indulgence, patience, or forgiveness or acceptance to be who we are and who we love. My friends, the pie is big enough to slice it in lots of other ways. We need not victimize, demonize, and discriminate through our words against anyone else because we are worried about what the size of the pie is going to be for me. And if you needed any more evidence as to where a majority of our aldermen stood on this, I mean, besides a 47-1 to vote, <laughs> after her speech, Lightfoot received a standing ovation from the city council. All right, now I know that our listening audience has been dying to hear a straight white guy's take on LGBT and black issues. Well, the wait is over. Ben Jarofsky, let's hear your thoughts here. Seriously, though, you've been covering politics in the city for over three decades. Good Lord, you're old. But you do have a keen knowledge as to what goes on behind the scenes in this very shady city we live in. Your thoughts, please. Well, first of all, four decades. You had older than you thought. I know. Good God. He's trying to help you out, dude. Um, I really just came around in the 90s, dude. Well, as I said yesterday, I am all over the map on this one. Uh, On one hand, I do think the uh, much of the discourse was on Tuesday was offensive. Uh, They kept making jokes based on a really bad. And I love Adam Sandler as much as the next one. But this movie was what was it called? The the with Um, Kevin James. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Yeah. All right. So they're making Chuck and Larry jokes. And uh, so it was pretty offensive. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's kind of like locker room here. Humor. That said. I understand the concern of uh, the uh, black alderman in Chicago City Council. Uh, this has been the issue of dividing the pie so that black people get a, a fair slice, to use Lori Lightfoot's metaphor, uh, has been on the table in the city of Chicago going back to even before I started covering politics in this town, D, when I was just reading about it back in the 70s, 10 years before you were born. And uh, this was an issue in the city of Chicago. We finally made some progress when Harold Washington uh, was uh, elected mayor of the city of Chicago. I remember this. We have a municipal bond industry in the city. The people who write the bonds, uh, underwrite the bonds when the city goes to borrow money, uh, as it's been explained to me by people in the know, it's not exactly the hardest practice in the world that any competent uh, thoughtful lawyer could do it with 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 proper training but for years and years it was just white guys who got in on the business when harold washington became mayor he said no i want some black attorneys to get a piece of this pie and lo and behold all of a sudden they did all right then harold washington uh dies mayor daly uh takes over and suddenly the city doesn't really care about using his resources to, uh, to help black people as much. So uh, it's I share their concern. And every year, it seems as though when the city uh, totals up the amount of contracts that have been divvied, to, uh, divvied out to uh, black-owned firms, it's less than it should be. It's less than they promise. It's less than their goals. And so whoever's in charge of procurement for the city of Chicago will say, we're going to do better next year. And then next year rolls around, and they don't do better next year. So I understand their concerns. Uh, so their, I think their rhetoric was off. I think their tone was off. Uh, I think they made their, they undercut the legitimacy of the uh, argue, of, of the argument they were raising. But I do think that there is some legitimate concern, and I am always 
very uh, concerned about how the pie is divided. The pie has always been unfairly divided, in my my opinion. That's one of my main gripes about the TIF program, which is money that's supposed to go to the poorest black wards in the city, the poorest Hispanic wards in the city, low-income wards that are struggling for economic development. Somehow or other, it goes to the richest wards. So the city, when it comes to its track record of divvying up the pie, is not that fair to the people who could really use a slice. So I just wouldn't be so what I wouldn't if I were the leader of the city of Chicago, if I were the mayor of the city of Chicago, I would just not be so easy just to dismiss the concerns of people who feel that the pie has been unfairly uh, divvied up over the last uh what, 40 years, 50 years, even before I was covering politics in Chicago. So I'm interested to see what this report's going to come up with. Can they do this uh, program fairly? We'll see. So you're saying good point, but poor presentation. Yes, horrible presentation, offensive presentation. Okay. Lori Leifert was absolutely correct to chastise them for the presentation. But I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss uh, the concerns. All right. Aside from the LGBT study, there was other business tended to. Yesterday, we mentioned that the mayor, along with the city's aldermen, are looking to ban styrofoam in city restaurants by the year 2021. Here, here. The uh, aldermen also, quote, tweaked cannabis zoning, helped the city acquire a handful of vacant properties near the under construction Obama Presidential Center and passed an anti-gentrification measure targeting Humboldt Park and Logan Square. Yeah, and we'll be talking about that anti-gentrification measure uh, if uh, today with uh, PC Peter Cunningham, probably tomorrow with uh, David Gold. Let's take the deep dive uh, on that one. Can, it, are there things the city can do to prevent gentrification in neighborhoods uh, like Humboldt Park? That's where uh, this particular measure was uh, earmarked. Or around the uh, Obama Library. In the past, the city has done absolutely nothing uh, to prevent gentrification. Uh, quite the contrary, the city has uh, done what it can to spark gentrification and to keep it going by subsidizing deals, uh, housing deals like Lincoln Yards. Lincoln Yards was like, uh, uh, is uh, fuels gentrification. You're pumping public dollars into private ventures that will just cause property taxes to rise. And so it's the exact opposite of putting the brakes on gentrification. So uh, the city is very slow to deal with the issue of gentrification. By and large, the, the prevailing wisdom of the people who run this city is that gentrification is a good thing. So now suddenly they're kind of changing their tone a little bit, their tune a little bit. Um, and uh, yesterday's measure was just like a, a like a little step in the direction of dealing with this issue. All right, moving on, everybody. It is primary election season in Illinois, and hey, if you want to feel like a broke ass, keep it right here <laughs> because right now the numbers are in. The numbers are in my face. It is time. Fourth quarter election campaign finance numbers are in. Ding 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 ding. Campaign cash reports have come ding, out. Ding. What, what is that? That was the ding ding of the cash register. Guys, that was the ding ding of the cash register <laughs> for those listening. I was wondering what that was. One more time. Ding 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 ding. Oh my God, is there a cash register here? I know. It's the, it's the fourth quarter. Holy Red cow. Red set, 2020. Okay. Oh, wrong no. sport. Yeah, yeah, no sports references. Okay. All right, fourth quarter election campaign finance numbers are in in Illinois. Campaign cash reports have come out. And my God, Illinois House Speaker Michael Joseph Madigan has a bunch of it. <laughs> Big surprise there. The latest quarterly report from the State Board of Elections show the total cash raised and the total cash on hand for four 
Madigan controlled campaigns. Let's go through all four of them. And people, I highly suggest not looking at your bank account while we do this. <laughs> we want you to have a good day. All right? We don't want to bad. We don't want to bum you out. All right. So let's go ahead and start this here, beginning with friends of Michael J. Madigan. All right, that's one total raised five million three hundred eleven thousand eight hundred two dollars and twenty seven cents. Who let Bernie in the room? <laughs> Cash on hand eleven million four hundred sixty one thousand five hundred forty two dollars and thirty nine cents. Wow. See, he's raising money. Still has uh, money that's unspent. <laughs> He's got $11 million. It's just pouring in. Good God. So that was one of them. Friends of Michael J. Madden. Really rich friends he's got there. All right, on to the next one. The Democratic Party of mm. Illinois. Yeah, okay. Amount raised. $1,587,029.21. Total cash on hand for the Democratic Party of Illinois. Two million one hundred sixty-eight thousand seven hundred ninety-five dollars and fifty-five cents. All right. Thoughts on that? Well, same thing as the first thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of. I'm going to hear where you're going with this, and then I'm going right, to give you all continue. my thoughts. Well, let's continue. Up next, it's the Thirteenth Ward uh, Democratic Organization. Okay, he's the committeeman in the Thirteenth Ward. Amount raised, not uh, in the millions. Mm-hmm. Six hundred. $56,385. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Cash on hand, $2 million. Ah. Okay. <laughs> $429,574.30. All right. So he has his own personal fundraising uh, uh, operation, the Mike Friends of Michael Madigan. Then he has, he's the head of the uh, Illinois Democratic Party. So he controls that uh, fundraising uh uh, fund and now he has he's the committeeman the democratic committee of the 13th ward so he's oversees that fund and what's the fourth one d the fourth one it says democratic majority nine hundred eighty three thousand nine hundred thirty six dollars and seventy one cents raised cash on hand five million wait five yeah, five, five million. million. It's not billion. I was gonna say, huh? No, it's million to, with an M. I went to community college, guys. <laughs> but you know the difference between an M and a B. Five million, <laughs> five hundred sixty-nine dollars and fifteen cents. I believe they cover that in uh, in, in some of the classes at uh, community college. The difference between an M and a B. Uh, D, MBD. Listen, here's the deal. I'm all over the map on this one. The, yeah, I don't it, think you need to say that anymore for anything the, on this show. The inner reformer in me is outraged. Outraged, I tell you, that that uh, the suckers and saps in this town just keep throwing more money at Michael Joseph Madigan. On the other hand, Miles Conflassen has entered his, uh, the building. Miles Conflassen has entered the building. Love to hear his thoughts on this. On the other hand, the Republicans are raising money, tremendous gobs of money, too. So should I, as my inner reformer, say, no, 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 Michael Joseph Madigan, raise no more money while the Republicans continue to raise money? Donald John Trump is just, I think he's, I forget how many millions he's raised uh, in just the last quarter alone. I know it dwarfs anything the Democrats have. Uh, So, okay, Michael Joseph Madigan, stop raising money. People stop giving money to Michael Joseph Madigan. 
when the Republicans stop raising money, when people stop giving money to the Republicans, same thing as the fair maps. It's like all the reformers in Illinois, oh, this is just outrageous that Michael Magnin is raising all this money. Oh, yeah? Where's your outrage about the Republicans? See, that's my problem, D. The way the system is set up, it's just too much money in the system, and it leads to all kinds of corruption. Uh, but that's the system. So if you just want to roll over and let Republicans win, then, yeah, beat up on Michael Joseph Madigan. That said, the issue that Adolfo Mondragon raises is one uh, which Chicago, there was uh, your that study that you're those uh, those numbers you're reading from Rich Miller, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rich had a link. Uh, Rich Miller, outstanding a journalist. What up, Rich? Uh, uh, had a link to a Chicago Tribune story that talks about how Michael Madigan has spent over four hundred thousand dollars of very legal fees. So I don't know how that's legal. You know what I'm saying? You're Where's raising... Jim Coogan when you need him? Well, <laughs> Jim Coogan or Adolfo Mandragon uh, can weigh in on this stuff. So listen. If we're going to clean up politics, if we're going to take out take money out of politics, it's got to be across the board. It can't just be, oh, we condemn Michael Joseph Madigan when the Democrats do it and look the other way when Donald Trump does it. And that's what too many of my friends of the Republican persuasion do in this town. They, when it comes to reform, they only get outraged when Democrats uh, engage in uh, sleazy practices. They have nothing to say when Republicans do it. So when we can have a bipartisan effort to take money out of politics, I will jump aboard it. But right now, all it looks as though is Republicans pretending they're reformers, getting outraged when Michael Joseph Madigan raises money from all the suckers and saps in town who pony up, and then, then they look the other way when Donald John Trump does. That's, that's, that's my thought, D. There you go. That's my thought on that one. I yes, don't believe that's anything. A with a B. I don't believe anything with the word reform in it when it comes in Illinois, because generally, we'll see what Miles has to say after we take the break, bring him on. Generally, when reform is uttered in the state of Illinois, it means taking something from someone and giving it to someone else. And in this particular case, when they talk about campaign finance reform, they want to take power from the Democrats and give it to Republicans. Meanwhile, uh, producer Dennis looks at his own bank account. Let me look. $36. Awesome. Uh, Great. <laughs> All right. So there you go, everybody. Yeah. That's the latest of what's going on in uh, Chicago and or Illinois. We'll keep you posted on these stories as today's program rolls along, by the way. Shout out to the YouTube live stream chat. We are having a one hell of a conversation on Bernie, Trump, Elizabeth oh. Warren, all things the debate last night. We got Miles ready to go on yeah. it. He's been, he's ready to go on this. If you're listening live, join in on the YouTube live stream chat. Who knows, a little later on, we may read your comments. People don't go anywhere. Miles Camp Lassen of In These Times is with us, and we got some Bernie to discuss. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show live from the Chicago Sun-Times. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicago. There are 91,000 people. When you lose a loved one whose wishes were to be cremated, Chicagoland Cremation Options provides your family a dignified and affordable cremation service. Chicagoland Cremation Options helps you bypass the expensive overhead of a funeral home or cemetery 
by streamlining the cremation directly. It saves you sometimes thousands of dollars. Chicagoland Cremation Options Crematory, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. You can find them at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. But she paid a terrible price. She was abused through the hearing. She was taken advantage of. Her reputation was attacked. I wish I could have done something. I opposed Clarence Thomas' nomination. I voted against him. But I also realized there was a real and perceived problem the committee faced. There were a bunch of white guys hearing this. Hey, everybody. What you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind, but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Hey, shout out to Margie Deal, who waited on the YouTube live stream chat. Welcome to the live stream chat, and welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago right. Sun-Times. Miles Complass, I've been dying to talk to Miles all day, uh, and uh, so much Bernie talk to have, uh, so much debate talk to have, Joe Biden talk to have, CNN cr uh, critique, uh, mainstream media dealing with Bernie Sanders, uh, right-wing uh, MAGA hat wearers trying to pretend like they care about Bernie Sanders, uh, impeachment is breaking out. Uh, good God, uh, Miles, so much to discuss. But let's just talk about uh, something that's, that I began with. Get your thoughts on. Uh, we've had just you and I have had little, just a little bit on this topic. Uh, whenever I hear or read a, a right winger or a MAGA hatter uh, crying crocodile tears for Bernie and talking about how the system's rigged, uh, I just have to shake my head. I absolutely convinced um that the maga hat wearers uh see bernie as a useful tool because they uh they want to divide bernie supporters from the rest of the democratic party to make it easier for donald trump to win and so they play upon what are some really real biases uh that the like cnn exposed in that debate in order to what just wreck havoc for Democrats. It's like they, they, it's not, they don't really care about Bernie Sanders. They don't want to advance Bernie Sanders' political uh, career. They don't want to advance the ideas that he's triumph, you know, that he uh, stands for his entire life, right? 
No, I mean, I think they're fundamentally opposed to the entire political project that Bernie Sanders represents, at least when it comes to the, you know, commentators and strategists and all of the, you know, people that you might be referring to. I do think there's a little, a slight difference with, I mean, I, I doubt there's tons of MAGA hat supporters that are willing to even think about Bernie anyway. But I mean, I've, you know, I've been to Iowa. I think that people, there's plenty of Republicans that are, want to get their student debt canceled, you know, that, that there's aspects of Bernie's program that voters might buy into, but they're not the ones writing these columns about, you know, Bernie's necessarily mistreated. That said, I mean, the media, there's a reason that the media in this country is one of the least trusted institutions. And it's because it was on full display uh, during that debate. I mean, you saw how bad faith those questions were and what, you know, they were trying to get out of it. I mean, they, besides any of the, you know, Bernie Warren spat, they also compared uh, Bernie Sanders' stance on trying to remove troops in the Middle East to Khomeini, to saying, you know, like, you're just like this, you know, Iranian dictator. Are you guys on the same side? Uh, they said, you know, your health care plan is going to bankrupt the country. What are you going to do about that? You know, it's using this framing of these questions that aren't just Republican talking points. They're, you know, they're, they're defending the type of, uh, you know, corporate cocktail party milieu that has these discussions and are, you know, shaking in their boots about what a political revolution of, you know, people in the streets demanding fundamental change would mean for them. And I think that that's very unrepresentative of what people, you know, everywhere want to hear about. You know, they don't think, oh, universal health care is going to bankrupt the country. And especially when, you know, the whole conversation, I was glad to see that that debate started out with a um, conversation about war and peace. That said, as you saw, there was zero questions about the cost of war. Um, And yet there's a million, when it comes to any kind of domestic spending, all we talk about is the cost. When we talk about, you know, Trump's tax bill that, you know, was added trillions of dollars to the deficit and over 80% of it went to benefit the wealthiest Americans. We don't talk about the cost. It's only when it comes to programs that are going to actually benefit working and poor people in the country, not the type of people usually represented in the corporate media sphere that suddenly, you know, we got to ask, what what are you going to do about bankrupting the country? So I think that there is people on all sides of the political spectrum are right to be upset with CNN about how that went. And I'm not surprised, you know, that John Cass would pick up on that as well. That said, I agree with you that I don't think that, you know, suddenly we should see any of these Republic, longtime Republican strategists or, you know, um, pontificators as now on our side. Well, it wasn't just Johnny Cass. It was uh, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted it out. I figure Cass gets his talking points from the MAGA hatter. So it's I mean, this was the line they were putting out. But you just think about what you said. You just did a good job of pointing out the biases that were implicit in the questions, the framing of the questions that CNN asked, uh, starting with, let's just deal with uh, health care. You're going to bank. What What are you? How are you going to justify bankrupting the country? Yeah. Just bankrupting the country. Just the, the concept of. And that's on their Chiron on the you know bottom of the uh, screen. So even if you, you know, didn't hear the whole question, that's what they're throwing in your face. So it's very clear how they're trying to but you notice, manage this conversation. Do you notice. Just to finish my point, do you notice that Donald John Trump Jr. and John Cass and Rich Lowry and all the other uh, right-wingers did not call them on the carpet for the implicit bias in that question? Because they will be turning right around, Miles, if Bernie is the candidate, and they will be writing that. They will be writing 
that point that he's going to bankrupt the country with by raising taxes on people for his health care. The same bias that's implicit in the question as framed by CNN, they will. So they don't complain about CNN when they have a bias on that regards. Yeah. But this this spat between Bernie and Elizabeth, oh, my God, we're outraged. Yeah. Well, I think that there's uh I agree that this is, you know, it's not just John Cass that's making this argument. There's other people that are, you know, feigning concern over it. And I do think that's strategic because it's a way to, you know, cause more division in the Democratic primary electorate. Um, but I also think that, you know, they're at the same time, the Trump campaign is putting out multiple press releases saying Bernie Sanders is a threat to our country. You know, Bernie Sanders is uh, wants to, you know, destroy American lives with an open borders policy. You know, they're trying to pummel their talking points and they're training their sights on Bernie for a reason, I think, because they see obviously he's, you know, in a very good place in the polls right now to uh, perform well in the Democratic primaries. Since they, they think now's the time they got to do this. I heard you earlier in the program, you know, talking about the... Uh, having some big oppo file and you know yeah. the video is already out of him shirtless in the soviet union oh, for one soviet thing. union is yeah. not there okay i always get and the country former soviet union. yeah yeah uh but yeah i mean this if that's what they have i mean i can't it's it's hard for me to say. i mean obviously they're gonna you know say all this but they're already throwing that at him in the democratic primary you know he's already being he's already been you know so opposed and unchallenged you compare that to somebody like joe biden who they asked a single question about you know iraq and then he said it was a mistake and they moved on and he tried to paint himself as somebody who uh, and you know we shouldn't kid ourselves Joe Biden is still leading the Democratic nomination this is the person that is most likely going to be the Democratic nominee unless you know we're going to start seeing vote totals come in uh, in the next few weeks so that could change but right now that's what you know people expect and he this is somebody who didn't just vote for the Iraq war he was like the leading Democratic cheerleader for it even after the war began throughout 2003 he was giving speeches he said I would do it again. He toured the Middle East to try to drum up support for the war. He advocated sending twenty to 50,000 additional troops in August of 2003. This is somebody who was, you know, a, a big time backer of it. He said, I support our president. Our president is popular about George W. Bush. He's going to try to, you know, mischaracterize his record now. And I understand that. But the fact that CNN is not calling out the leading Democratic nominee and instead doing these pointed questions towards Bernie Sanders shows exactly how they're trying they're trying to operate this primary and that shows that you know they they still see Bernie Sanders as an outsider and that type of opposition that he's going to face from the media is the same he would face in a general election too so if you're talking about somebody who's like you know been tested and you know oh people are worried that once Bernie's the nominee, the Republicans will just destroy him. Mm -hmm. I think you should look at the press releases that are coming from the Trump campaign that show that they are they don't know how to respond to Bernie Sanders because he has an incredibly popular program. And it's I think it's a positive thing that he has such passionate supporters. You know, that's a, that goes to show that somebody has like hit a nerve with the American public. And that's not something to uh, shy away from. All right. What was your sense of uh, the Bernie Warren uh, showdown at, at the debate. Well, I, I mean, it's very, uh, there's, there's no good way to, you know, spin what is happening. That's a very bad, uh, development in the primary and it's nasty. And I think it shows that this is, you know, a very, this is clearly a very, um, difficult issue for a lot of people to talk about. And ultimately that comes down to a conversation between two people that we don't, you know, understand. I mean, we got the uh, audio of what they said to each other after the debate, but 
we don't know what was said in, in 2018. So there's no way to have, you know, there's no way for somebody to be totally right or totally wrong. What we do know is that CNN pushed out this story by sources, you know, around uh, the Elizabeth Warren camp. Then she confirmed it. Then they brought it up at the debate. This comes on the heels of, you know, a series of polls showing that Bernie Sanders is in the lead that in, in Iowa. Um, and, you know, he's gaining steam ahead of this nomination. And what do you know, weeks before, um, there is an effort to, you know, paint Bernie Sanders as essentially a misogynist. And I think that's been led by the media, not even necessarily the Warren campaign. I mean, we don't know where the sources necessarily came from. But if people knew about this conversation, clearly it had been openly talked about amongst the campaign if that many sources were willing to talk about it. So I think it's not surprising that this is when this happened, that there's going to be some type of a, you know, media moment for people to write all these stories about and talk about conflict within the Democratic primary. But when it comes down to it, I mean, that doesn't change the dynamics of the race. As you saw, Bernie Sanders raised more money than he ever had during a Democratic debate the other night. So the and it was from new donors as well, largely. So there's still the energy that has been propelling his candidacy. I don't see wavering because of this. Well, my sense of it is, uh, get your reaction to this. It was a, t- a tactical decision made by both camps because Bernie's uh, his camp was putting out the notion that Elizabeth Warren was an elitist, which um, my guess it comes from polling. Uh, focus groups so much of that drives politics anyway and so if if there's a weakness that elizabeth warren has it's this sense that somehow or other she's not in touch with ordinary americans uh and so bernie's people started putting that out about two weeks ago or we i can't remember losing track of time miles uh with the robo calls that they were putting out the scripted calls well, it was a, it was a script for canvassers canvasser, yes canvassers that's what you're i said corrected and then uh and then elizabeth warren's people started putting out that bernie's a misogynist and i'll bet you anything that their focus group and their polls show that's a lingering issue from the 2016 uh, Hillary Bernie race. Now, um, I think there was a both bum raps. The one against the elitist tag against Elizabeth Warren, I think, is a bum rap. And I think Bernie is a misogynist uh, is obviously uh, a bum rap. And um, so I don't think either campaign is innocent uh, in, in, in this one. I think they're 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 getting down and dirty uh, uh, miles because they realize in many ways one is blocking the other and they have to remove that impediment if they want to win the nomination i would push back against the idea that this is you know that there's both sides are equally to blame in this uh uh you know spat because it's one thing to have a uh, campaign script, which doesn't call Elizabeth Warren elitist. I mean, I think we should be honest about what the you know the that script said, which was that she's not bringing new voters into the electorate the same way that Bernie Sanders can because uh, her base is largely more uh, upper class and college educated, and these are people that are traditionally part of the Democratic base. I think that's a political argument. You can you know say that that is you know trashing Elizabeth Warren as she said. I see that a different way. I agree with you that it was a clearly somebody made this political strategic move, not Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's not involved in writing these, you know, scripts that go out to like a small number of volunteers. So I don't think that that's, you know, a high level campaign decision. 
Certainly not the way that Elizabeth Warren has chose to approach this through putting out her own statement and then bringing it back up on the debate stage. That said, I can't, you know, I don't know what that conversation was like in 2018, so I can't, you know, comment on that. And I think that that should be how we all approach this. That said, I mean, Bernie Sanders has said a woman could be president many, many times. He encouraged Elizabeth Warren to run in 2015 against Hillary, well, ultimately, you know, against Donald Trump, but it, as, as a Democrat to take on Hillary Clinton and uh, Elizabeth Warren refused to do so. That's kind of why Bernie got into the race himself. So to think that it was, you know, he fundamentally believes a woman can't be president when he encouraged a woman to run for president, you know, just a few years ago, that is very difficult to square for me. And I think it is for most people. I think that's different than than putting having a campaign putting out a script that shows where you know the, the kind of political calculus of choosing which candidate you're going to support. That said, I do agree that you know clearly Warren Camp sees Sanders supporters as the ones that they can pick off, and that's really their only path towards victory in some of these early states. It's not so much the Biden voters, and so that's why they're you know trying to create this wedge. That's what I believe. I'm not a strategist. I don't know. I haven't seen the polling, but that really looks like most likely the tact that's taken. And it was political operatives that decided to do this. It wasn't necessarily Elizabeth Warren or even her supporters or certainly not the organizations that are fighting for social justice that have endorsed her that were part of this. It was, you know, people making strategic political choices. And I think that that's a bad choice for advancing progressive politics in the U.S. You know, Miles, I got to ask you this. Uh, You watched you. I presume you watched the debate live. Did you watch it? Okay. I was watching it live on my little cell phone because I don't have cable. And uh, just going back to the moment uh, where Abby Phillips asked the question of Elizabeth Warren the way she did after Bernie's uh, vehement denial. Uh, I, I was, I didn't even, I got to tell him, I was like, what? I remember yeah. why, like, it, was she being ironic? Was she being funny? I, I was like, dumbfounded well, well what they <laughs> I said never seen anything like that i mean what they said afterwards i think is very eye-opening in that you know in their you know spin room they're you know the the commentators are all talking about it and they're like well bernie denied it but it was a reported story so he's clearly going against the truth and you know using cnn's own reporting as the evidence That's that this is said? reported when you can't report on a he said she said conversation and make you know, uh, come down on either way because there's just no way to have. You, yes, sources told you that, but those sources were only, re, you know, relaying what one side yeah. of that conversation said. So it doesn't count in my view that that's some airtight case that this thing happened. But that's how they defended asking the question that way, and that it was based on a reported story. But I think anybody watching could see no, that's uh, it's, the reporting doesn't matter because there's two people that both are, you know, describing this conversation differently. So. I, man, I got to tell you, when uh, Abby Phillips hammered him on it with that direct question, she goes, so are you saying definitively that you did not say it? And he said, yes. I thought it was like, an, uh, I've seen so many courtroom dramas, Miles. I thought that at that point she was going to say, uh, well, uh, let me turn your attention to this yeah. film I have. It'd be like footage of Bernie going, oh, woman can't win. Yeah. And like, what do you say about but that? There is no, there is no footage <laughs> of that because yeah. of course not. There's fo- what there is footage of him is, you know, saying in 1988, I believe a woman could be elected president. So, I mean, that's the footage I think we should care about. The other thing is, yeah. I think it's fine for us to have this conversation. You know, uh, you know, we talk about all kinds of 
political issues of the day and everything. But if this is the conversation that's dominating news headlines and, and debate about the future of this country ahead of the first primaries, the most critical election of our lives, I think that's a really sad result of you know where our media and our politics have taken us. And I think it's definitely, be- I know it's benefiting them. I work in media. I know I see the clicks and the shares and all of the attention that is being paid to this story. And of course, they would much ra- all these outlets would much rather talk about some interpersonal dispute rather than talking about you know what uh, what we should do about dealing with the fact that 500,000 people are sleeping on the street and you know there, there's a housing crisis in America and that the planet you know is on fire and look at you know Australia so I think that we, we should not lose sight of the fact that this is a common tactic that you know media and campaigns take when they're trying to reframe the conversation and the beneficiary of it sadly I think at least in that debate was Joe Biden because this was the chance to have a referendum on the leading candidate who, as you know, Sanders has pointed out many times, has an incredibly weak record when it comes to issue after issue. I mean, look at even, you know, the I know Democrats voted for this NAFTA 2.0 today, mm-hmm. but look at some of the people that came out against it and followed Bernie Sanders' lead. Chuck Schumer came out against it. The Senate Majority Leader said he wouldn't vote for this UMC, USMCA proposal because it didn't uh, address climate change strongly enough. That's exactly what Bernie Sanders said in the debate. That's the kind of, you know, debates we should be uh, talking about. And yet there's so few stories written about trade, which impacts all, you know, look at Pennsylvania, look at Ohio, look at Michigan. These are the states that Democrats need to win that went for Trump and largely because of outsourcing of jobs and the devastation of communities. And yet in the way, even though that was discussed at the debate, in the wake of it, People are just talking about the, you know, what what happened off mic between Warren and Sam. That's that to me is not a productive uh, debate in terms of moving people. And I guarantee you, you go if you go knock on doors in any of these early states, they're not all going to be talking about, you know, what happened in a conversation in 2018. They're talking about losing their health care and being mired in debt. So I think those are the kind of issues that we should right. mainly focus now, on. Now you mentioned health care. Uh, and this is one of uh, my pet peeves, is how the debate has remained fairly the same. I've, I've watched every debate. I think you have as well, because we've talked about them. Yeah. Uh, and the debate remain. you talk about framing a debate to uh, undercut at least my perspective. Uh, the, the debate is always framed as, uh, well, if we go to a comprehensive plan, the way, the one that Bernie advocates, uh, or uh, even Elizabeth Warren, we're going to bankrupt America. Yeah. We can't afford it. And uh, so Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, uh, that's what they say. The questions that come in under, underline that point. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it just continually... It, it's, it, I, I say this on the show all the time. It's the national version of a debate we have in Chicago. We like, there's no money for nurses, but there's money for Lincoln Yards. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, how do you think Bernie can, uh, can Bernie talk beyond that? Do you think his message can get beyond this like conventional wisdom that is just so, is so uh, defined, is so rigid uh, in uh, the mainstream media? Well, the obsession with deficits has been a reigning principle of both major political parties in the U.S. for 
uh, a very long time, certainly throughout my lifetime. The difference is that, I mean, I think it's employed cynically on both sides, but the Republicans are very good at, uh, you know, feigning concern about national debt and deficits when it, come, when it comes election time and they're trying to defeat a Democrat. Mm-hmm. What they're not, you know, look at what Trump is doing with this trade war right now, right? He's got this trade war and farmers across the U.S. are upset because they're, you know, they're not being able to sell the, you know, goods that they were selling before. And so Trump is just paying them off basically with like stimulus uh, spending mm-hmm. and that's raising the deficit and it's all to appease farmers which you know that that's ostensibly a good thing but it's not going through the normal you know congressional avenues of getting this passed and it's all to blunt anger over this trade war that he's uh, taking out with China nobody's talking about how we pay for that nobody's talking about how we paid for the you know the deficits resulting from the tax cuts Paul Ryan never talked about you know deficit concerns or the need for austerity politics when it came to defending uh, spending on uh, Iraq, you know, multi-trillion dollar uh, effort that's still ongoing to this day. So I think it's completely cynical when the Republicans do it. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi herself has said we need to have these pay-go rules and pay for everything, you know, include how we're going to pay for everything up front, as if that that's any type of sound economic sense. I mean, look at the foundation of the New Deal is all this Keynesian economics. We need to stimulate the economy. We need to spend, spend, spend so that we can get people with money in their pockets so that we can have a better you know, infrastructure so we can put people to work. That's the type of agenda that's being pushed by not just Bernie Sanders, but look at all the movements that are supporting him right, right now. You know, Look at the people's action that just got on board with the Sanders campaign. The type of you know homes guarantee and federal jobs guarantee that these types of groups are backing are popular because they would actually help American people. And you know when we talk about it, what Republicans will always say, what Democrats will say often is, you know, we got to think about this like our own budgets. You know, mm-hmm. we got to go home and get look at the ledger and make sure everything balanced. That's not how a national economy works. You know, you have Treasury stocks, you have bonds, you have, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can work to. Uh, make sure that you are accomplishing the domestic spending priorities that you put in order while not worrying about how you're going to, you know, bankrupt the country. Because if we were going to, we've already bankrupted the country by spending so much money on, you know, trillion dollar wars. If we were really concerned about it, we would have a conversation about that. But we're not. We only really talk about it when it comes to programs, as I said, are going to redistribute wealth and benefit poor people rather than rich people. Yeah, uh, it is a sucker's game. I agree with you that when the Democrats uh, start talking like Republicans, because Republicans don't even pretend to care about the deficit. Well, they uh, do when they're when it's election time. Then you no. have Paul Ryan saying we need to cut Social Security and Medicare. Something else that Joe Biden supports. Let me amend that. They only care about the deficit when it's a Democratic president that they could tag with being a deficit buster. When it's a Republican president, and I go back to Ronald Wilson Reagan back in the 1980s. They, oh, my God, he was the, the deficit soared under uh, on Ronald course, Reagan because with his tax cuts. I didn't hear Republicans complain about Republicans. Republicans are no joke, man. They don't care. No, because they've got to give them credit. They just don't care. I give them credit because they understand that politics is a game of power and you need to win. And when you you do that to employ these arguments to benefit your own agenda and Democrats just buy into it again and again and again. And I think that's part of the reason people are so fed up with um, what they see as like the establishment and why it's honestly a benefit to have somebody who is perceived as outside of that establishment as being the standard bearer because they're willing to say, hey, I didn't vote for NAFTA. I didn't vote for, you 
you know, permanent normal trade relations with China. I didn't vote for the Iraq war. I think that that's a really positive thing to show that you broke with the consensus to support a working class agenda. All right, my next guest, uh, Jeff Johnson, is Senator Studio. We're going to bring him on real soon. But before I do, uh, we had a lot of discussion about this yesterday, impeachment. Uh, I urge everybody to check out the David Ferris interview I did, which drops on Saturday. Uh, we did a deep dive on impeachment. We had long discussions with uh, Monroe Anderson, our Trump expert, Trump, 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 and more Trump yesterday. Uh, today, the articles of impeachment were advanced to the Senate. I've not been able to hear any of the debate or discussion that's happened in the Senate. You uh, you got to listen to a little bit. Give well, I, saw, I, you know, I think it's worth noting because today is the first, the official day that um, the trial begins uh, in the Senate. And so they read out the articles of impeachment. The managers, Adam Schiff, read the first article, which is abuse of power. One really important note that uh, is that the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, came out with uh, their findings that, yes, Donald Trump did violate federal law by withholding the aid to the Ukraine. Now, Trump administration, um, of course, objects to this. However, this is an independent fact-finding body in the government. This isn't some Democratic-led operation. It's the GAO. So that is you know, going to be, a, I think, a major element of debate once there's actual questioning in the, in the trial. Um, and also, this uh, Lev Parnas character is back in the news. If you know, you remember I talked about him back in October of last year when he was fired or, or arrested when trying to flee the country. Um, and now, what do you know? He's back and spilling the beans. He just went on, you know, he went on Rachel Maddow. He went on CNN as well, and he said, "Look, this goes all the way up the chain of command." Trump knew about everything. He made explosive claims that the actual reason that Pence decided not to go to Zelensky's inauguration, um, because they did cancel it the day before, was because they refused again to open up an investigation into the Bidens. Uh, You could say, understandably, and this is very fair, like this guy's under indictment. He's trying to get a good deal. He's willing to squeal. He's willing to say anything. But the detail in which he gives about these operations, and of course, they turned over a massive trove of evidence, of text messages, of emails, all you know, showing this type of relationship. And you know, it just shows Rudy Giuliani is really the linchpin in all this. And what a guy! He was like in the deepest, darkest corners. And if you listen to Lev Parnas, he's clearly kind of a goony type guy, you know, and is uh, very open about that. And that's the kind of people that Rudy Giuliani, he, Rudy Giuliani both had him as a client and supposedly, you know, he was working for the Trump campaign. So it's all this weird relationship dynamic going on. Unfortunately, the ultimate, the, the underlying dynamics of this trial have not changed. Mitch McConnell is still refusing to see any witnesses. The Republican, you know, a unity around defending President Trump does not seem to be wavering at all. So it's, you know, near and like uh, impossible for me to imagine a scenario in which they don't just acquit yeah. him and he claims I, you know, am vindicated and goes off into the election season bragging about that. So I don't think that there's going to be any, you know, we'll see. I don't think there's going to be any major changes in that. But uh, it is notable that today is when the impeachment begins. And it's going to mean that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar are all going to be off the trail yes. because they're going to be now sitting in the Senate for yeah. full days, six days a week for the foreseeable future, you know, starting most likely on Tuesday after MLK Day. So that will have a big impact on these upcoming primaries. All right. Very good. Any articles you want to uh, promote before I let you go? Well, go to InTheseTimes.com and read uh, Bronco. Mustich has an article about Joe Biden's Iraq war record um, and specifically how he mischaracterized it during the debate. Um, we also have a piece by him on uh, that I worked on with him on Amy Klobuchar's history of while she says she wants to protect Obamacare 
Obamacare. She voted against all these different, she voted for these bills to repeal uh, taxes that were part of what cre- made Obamacare actually work in the first place. So kind of throws into question some of her uh, claims about that. I'll also give a, um, just mention this really quick, because this happened on Saturday. I went to the um, uh, protest this March for Life rally, which people know about. This is this big uh, pro, uh, pro-life pro rally that is uh, held every year, and they had Dan Lipinski yeah, Dan speaking mm-hmm. at it. And But the thing that was so surreal, and I post about this on social media, is that the uh, Patriot Front was out there. Um, these are, you know, white supremacist neo-Nazis that are, you know, openly brag of that. They're all masked up in white masks, and they have their own flags, and they're chanting blood and soil and strong nations, strong borders, strong families, this whole, you know, very uh, deeply disturbing right wing, uh, far right, you know, white supremacist rhetoric. Uh, and they're out there right in front of Dan Lipinski and he's given his speech and they're like defending the rally. One of the most one of the more disturbing things I've seen uh, in the city of Chicago and certainly seeing, a, you know, Democratic politician, somebody considered a leader in the Democratic Party uh, being, you know, uh, around. I hope that he gets asked about that in some way, shape or form. You know, he's in this competitive primary with Marie Newman right now in Illinois' third district, but just had to mention that because that was something I, yeah. you know, you don't usually see, and I think it's worth noting. All right, yeah, I saw your mention of that on on media. Uh, Jeff Johnson on deck. We're going to bring him on. Miles, thank you so much. We'll be right back after this. Thank you. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago: culture, food arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. I'm Michael Bennett, and for the past 10 years, I've been a senator from the great state of Colorado. You probably don't know me because I don't go on cable news every night. 